Hold on. Okay. To wrap us up, this is Dr. Catherine Shevkin. She's graciously replacing Nina Sandlad, who unfortunately had to leave uh, for a family reason, but we're very happy to have you. Thanks so much. So, um, Kathy got her MD at the George Washington University and um, her undergraduate at University of North Carolina. And she's an assistant professor, assistant professor of pediatrics here at DHMC. And she um, works a lot with adolescents. I do. Yes. 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 <laughs> Including my own teenage daughter who got her driver's license this morning. So I'm a little on edge right now because she got the car and drove to school. So, and she's driving home right now. So if I'm a little touchy, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, so again, I obviously am not Dr. Nina Sandloud. I'm Kathy Shudkin. I am a general pediatrician. I do a lot of adolescent medicine. Um, and I, again, in full disclosure, I have two teenage daughters of my own. Um, so, uh, as uh, Joan said, Dr. Sandloud had a family emergency, so I am going to chip in. Um, please feel free to interrupt me, ask questions as we go along. Um, I have nothing to disclose. How many of you guys have kids with ADHD in your school? <laughs> all right, everybody. All right, so this is something that's super common. We all have to deal with it, whether or not we're in pediatrics, nursing, schools, wherever we are. So we're going to start by kind of reviewing the role of the school nurse. You guys are really the linchpin that holds us together sometimes in the treatment of kids with ADHD. We're going to talk a little bit about the diagnosis of ADHD, review some of the common medications used to treat ADHD, and then talk a little bit about some of the things that you guys might see in behavioral strategies with the schools. Um, these are Dr. Sandloud's slides, so there are some that I might flip through because they're her uh, area of expertise in terms of she's a developmental uh, behavioral pediatrician. Um, but if you have questions afterwards, um, Joan has my email address. Feel free to email me, and I'm happy to pass along those questions to Dr. Sandloud so when, that she, when she comes back, if there's something that I didn't make quite clear, um, she can email you guys back. All right, so typical day in my pediatric office. Yesterday, I had a lovely almost seven-year-old boy. I've been seeing him since he was an infant. Um, and he came in with the chief complaint of he is not doing well in school right now. Um, he has um, some social challenges right now. His parents got divorced about two and a half years ago. Like many divorces, it wasn't necessarily the smoothest thing ever. They tolerate each other in the room, but it's clear there's some tension there. He splits time equally between his parents' house. He has an older brother who's actually got some anger issues and is in therapy for that. He beats up his younger brother a little bit. It's, it's again, it's not a super, they're, an, they're a family who cares deeply, but they've got some challenges. Um, when he went to school, he had been in preschool. He had gotten preschool. He went through kindergarten. And in first grade, he's really not catching up very well. He is, has an IEP in place. He actually had a really lovely evaluation in his school district. He has some OT support. He has some reading support. And he has some speech therapy to support. Despite all the support, it is March of the year, and he is still reading at a preschool level. His special ed um, teacher finally said, you know what, I think he's got ADHD. I keep talking to him and we keep doing stuff and you know what, he's looking around and twirling and doing stuff and touching the other kids in the classroom. I think if we could get the ADHD under control, I think he would do better with his special education. 
The parents very much disagreed um, with each other and with the schools a little bit about what the best treatment strategy would be for him. So both parents um, came into my office yesterday to talk about what to do next. And I think that's a fairly common story that you guys see in the school. It's certainly something common that I see in my practice on a regular basis. Prevalence. Again, we've all seen it. Um, 9% of kids who are seen in primary care offices carry the diagnosis of ADHD. 17% of children who are in public mental health clinics like West Central Behavioral Health or HCRS if you've come from the Vermont side. 20% of kids who are referred for crisis intervention. And then 44% of kids receiving special education services. These statistics are a little bit old, but they really haven't changed over the past 20 years. I'm speaking to the choir right now. You guys are really our bridge. You're a member of two communities which don't always talk to each other very well, the medicine world and the educational world. And you guys are our bridge to help collaborate, communicate between these two different languages that we're speaking. You guys can also serve as the case managers, coordinating student health care between the home, between the, medical, between the medical facility, between the schools, the special education departments. As an interdisciplinary team member, you guys bring the health expertise when you go to the 504 meetings, when you go to the IEP planning meetings. Um, you create, update, and implement individual health care plans for kids with special health care needs, including ADHD. How many of you guys actually dispense your medications in your office every morning? Again, almost all of you. We certainly, I will speak for myself and for Karen Downing, who's the ADHD nurse who coordinates things through our clinic. We spend a lot of time talking with you guys. This kid isn't getting his medicine at home because he lives in two separate homes and dad doesn't agree with it or mom doesn't have the medicine or there's a question of diversion. And we ask you guys to give medicine sometimes. Sometimes it's that they need a boost at lunch or a boost of their medication right before they go to a homework club in the middle school. Um, so sometimes it's direct ca patient care, medication administration, treatments, procedures. And then you guys often, again, are our bridge or communication to educate the schools about chronic health care conditions, about what it means, what's the natural history, what can teachers expect, what can students expect sometimes if they've got a kid who's really disruptive in that classroom. Um, again, in terms of educational outcomes, ADHD is a serious morbidity for kids. They don't pass school as much. More of them are in special education. More of them get suspended, expelled. More of them drop out of school despite special education services. They have a lower class ranking, lower GPA, lower college attendance, and lower graduation rates. I was talking to Dr. Sandloud last night as we, I was prepping for this talk, and I said, okay, so what about the adults now? Anybody know about the adults? And she said there was just a study published 30-year study looking at uh, job outcomes, personal relationships. Both of those have suffered for kids who are diagnosed with ADHD in childhood. So this is an illness that has chronic, <laughs> lifelong complications sometimes. And it's really important that we identify it, manage it, and treat it fairly aggressively um, when they're little, when they're in school with us. I think everybody's had this question, does television watching cause ADHD? <laughs> And while it doesn't cause ADHD, it certainly does impact a child's ability to pay attention, a child's ability to sustain attention, a child's ability to do homework at home if they're always online clicking. 
often not the remote control anymore, at least if it's like my own children, it's their phone, which is permanently attached to their hip. So again, it definitely can impact their attention span. So what causes ADHD? As you guys all know, there's no brain test, there's no blood test, there's nothing that you can, you know, come up to Dartmouth and go get something done and get a rock-solid diagnosis. We know that it comes from multiple etiologies, multiple causes. I think all, everybody who studies ADHD, whether or not it's uh, the medical world, the educational world, the psychological world, all realize that it falls into the realm of biology that overlaps neurology, genetics, social influence, all overlap to cause ADHD. But the final common pathway is something that we can't measure. It's that the communication in the frontostriatal cerebellar brain circuits don't communicate really well with each other. And at least at this point, maybe in another 20 years or 30 years, we'll be able to have a brain scan that looks at that, looks at those communication between those brain pathways. Right now, we rely on a lot of other testing, um, and you guys, we'll go through that in a little bit about how to diagnose ADHD. The social environment, as you guys know, doesn't cause ADHD but it impacts the impairment a child may have. So a child who is in social chaos at home, who doesn't have secure housing, who has food insecurity, who has domestic violence, who has seen his brother get hit, those kids can't pay attention well in school. And if they have underlying ADHD, it's certainly going to make their behavior more challenging. So the AAP back in 2002, this is the second edition now that we're on. I'm sure there will be a third one coming out soon with the new DSM-5. Um, the, um, the AAP, um, American Academy of Pediatrics, put together a toolkit for us in pediatrics to be able to standardize our diagnosis, management, and treatment of ADHD. Um, and this has now been out for... 15 years now, and I think most pediatricians in the country use this format. Um, so again, that we're standardizing it, we're not just saying, oh yeah, we think that kid's a little hyper in class, let's give him some Ritalin, but we're really trying to do a thorough, thoughtful, stepwise fashion in terms of diagnosis and management. The AAP clinical practice guidelines are applicable for kids between the ages of 4 and 18, again, who present with inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, academic underachievement, or behavioral problems. And those are all kids who can fall in that domain of maybe possibly having ADHD. But it requires a lot of different assessments. It requires evidence directly from the parents or caregivers. So sometimes that is mom, sometimes that is dad, sometimes that's a daycare provider or a nanny. Sometimes it's the coach after school, um, the den mother for Cub Scouts, all of those people sometimes have a, will ask them for advice or an assessment of how that child performs. It also requires input from the classroom teacher. And again, some of these kids, it's not just the classroom teacher. It's the classroom teacher, it's the reading specialist, it's the occupational therapist, it's anybody who might be working with that child in an educational um, setting. My job is also to look for any associated or coexisting conditions with, which either are um, uh, causing symptoms that look like ADHD but aren't, or who, uh, other conditions which might be exacerbating the ADHD which is underlying. 
As I said, there's no brain test, blood scan, blood test, anything that can be diagnostic, but certainly we use other diagnostic modalities, especially in the school district, looking for learning disabilities, IQ testing, some of the neuropsych or psychoeducational testing is really helpful for the diagnosis of ADHD, especially in school age um, and middle school children. All right, so we're going to run through some cases now. Any questions so far? Okay. So I'm just going to run through some cases, and again, feel free to question, interrupt. This is similar to the case that I presented um, at the beginning. Six-year-old boy comes into the office accompanied by his mother, report that he's having a hard time adjusting to school, just doesn't seem to be catching on very well. You know, the other kids all seem to be learning their ABCs, learning how to read. They're sitting in circle time really nicely, and this mom is just continuing to get you know, note after note from the teacher, you know, Johnny got another yellow card today. He got a red card yesterday. The school bus driver actually asked that he not be on the bus anymore, um, right? That one's one that you guys have all heard. So what do you do next? This is Dr. Sam Loud's side. History, history, history. So again, without a brain scan or a blood test, we really have to go through the, what's the actual behavior that's going on? Is it that he is getting out of circle time? Is that he's throwing pencils across the room? Is it that he just starts singing in the middle of class? Is it that he just stares off into space and doesn't really seem to be paying attention to what's going on? When did it start? Is this a kid who seemed to always be different than the other children that she has raised, than the mom has raised? And often we'll hear that even though the diagnosis, we like to wait until they're school-age kids, the parents will often say, I will tell you that this child was different. <laughs> like, this was my different child. They were always busy. They were jumping, you know, swinging from the chandelier over the dining room table. This was my busy kid. Where did it start? Is it just at home? Is it just at school? Is it just at Cub Scouts? Where is this happening? Social family history. Is there a family history of learning disabilities, there are family history of difficulty in school. I always ask the parents, what grade did you get to? Did you finish high school? Did you have any special education? Do you have any specialized training, graduate school, college, anything else like that? Is there learning disability, ADHD, anxiety, depression, anything else going on? Social history we talked about a little bit. Safe housing, adequate food, adequate transportation, a safe place to live all make a difference for these kids. And then we do a physical exam, too, to rule out some of the things that might mask as ADHD but really aren't. You guys have all seen these. These are the Vanderbilts. This came out of that. Yes, sir. What, what are you looking to rule out? Um, we can talk about that a little bit right now. I'm going to come back to it as well. Some of the things are things that you guys screen for, hearing loss, vision problems, Sometimes we look for seizures. I had one patient last year. I was so proud of the medical student who worked with me last year. Um, this was November of last year, and I had an eight-year-old kid who came in for an ADHD evaluation, and he got a really good history. And he came back, and he said, Dr. Shubkin, I, you know, the parents came in and said, every November till about March, we get into trouble at school. And there's always been a, this is the third year in a row. The teacher comes back and says something. And he said, Dr. Shubkin, She's coughing all night because her asthma is so bad. She hasn't slept a wink. And I said, I think you're right. Let's get her asthma under control a little bit better and see if the teachers are still complaining about it. And sure enough, we followed her up about a month later after doing some more aggressive asthma treatment. And 
she was really doing better in school and the teachers weren't so concerned about ADHD. Absence seizures are something we look at. So again, there are some medical things that we look at um, in addition to other mental health comorbidities, anxiety, depression, history of violence, any of those things can be comorbid conditions as well. All right, you guys have seen the Vanderbilt forms. I'm sure a few of you have gathered them for us or sent them back in. Um, this is actually an older form. The newer ones are, look a little bit cleaner. Um, basically, on the symptoms over here, I'm not sure. Let's see. The symptoms over here, one through nine, are symptoms of inattention. And then nine through 18 all have questions that are related more to hyperactivity. The rest of them from 19 on below look at some of those comorbidities, including anxiety, depression, conduct disorder, and oppositional defiant disorder. What we're looking for is a score. Scores in this column, a two or a three, um, as often. So for instance, question number two, has difficulty keeping attention to what needs to be done? This kid scored a three. What we're looking for is six out of nine in inattention and six out of nine in hyperactivity, which would suggest the diagnosis of ADHD. Again, we have to triangulate our responses, though. So we have parent. One of the things that's really important is that kids can be inattentive. They can be hyperactive. I'm sure you guys have friends or family who are like that. I know I do. There are certain family members who really are pretty spacey, but they're really lovely people. You just have to remind them about dinner a couple of times. But they have good jobs. They have nice families. And it's not disruptive or a problem for them. So the same thing with a child. A child's three main jobs in life are to go to school, have a good relationship with their families, and have a good relationship with their peers. I don't really care how inattentive or hyperactive they are unless it's a problem. And it has to be a problem either in school and or at home and or with their peers. So here we go. Is it a problem? Four or five would suggest that there is some problem. Okay, so this is parent forms. Teachers, totally agree. Six out of nine, inattention. Six out of nine, hyperactivity is what we're looking for. And the teacher also thinks that there's some problems in terms of his academic performance. So this kid would be diagnosed with ADHD combined type. Um, again, you have to have six or more signs of inattention that is present for at least six months and is disruptive. Again, is it a problem? Hyperactivity, which encompasses both hyperactivity and impulsiveness, again, has to be present for six months, and it has to be disruptive. Um, the newest DSM-5 recommendation was that, or diagnosis, diagnosis category, has that the impairment had to be present before age 12. In the old DSM-4, it was before age 7. So they've given us a little bit more leeway. It definitely has to occur in childhood. Um, but I certainly have a lot of patients who are academically gifted enough or can cover it enough in other ways, and it doesn't show up or manifest until the academic rigors of fourth, fifth, sixth grade really hit them. So I do have quite a few kids who show up kind of in the late elementary school, early middle school with ADHD. It doesn't happen when it's later on in life, college. So that's a good question. Can you hold that thought? And I want to talk about that. Um, because there are certainly adults now who are getting diagnosed and college-age students who are getting diagnosed with it. But hold that thought for a little bit. Again. Clear impairment in at least two or more settings. 
All right, keep going. So based on these criteria, three types of ADHD are identified, combined type, there's predominantly inattentive type, and predominantly hyperactive type. Case two, eight-year-old girl comes into your office saying that the school says she needs to be evaluated for ADD. So again, as Dr. Sanloud says, history, history, history. It's all in our history gathering. When, where, why, social family history, physical exam. You'll notice that this kid, the parent, nothing really here in inattention, maybe a little bit inattentive, but not bad. Hyperactivity, really nothing at all. She definitely has some learning problems, so uh, reading, writing, and mathematics are all a problem there. The teacher, however, scored her really high on inattention. She's not a fidgety kid. She's not the kid who's throwing pencils or getting out of circle time, but she's definitely not paying attention in school. And again, the teacher academically says it's really a problem. Okay. You'll notice in both these kids, though, that the comorbid conditions in terms of anxiety, depression, ODD, or conduct disorder really don't exist. Okay, so again, in order to make the diagnosis, the symptoms of ADHD have to occur in more than just one place. So this one, the teacher says yes, the parent says no. Um, this might be a case where if they were a good athlete, I might ask the coach to do it. Or if they took piano lessons, I might ask the piano teacher to fill it out too. So what else could be going on? This is part of your question. What else could be going on? Learning disabilities, that's the one that we ask the schools to take a look at a lot. Vision hearing, is there bullying at school right now? Um, is there anxiety or a different mental health disorder? Talked about absence seizures a little bit. And again, the social challenges. If you don't have breakfast in the morning, you can't pay attention at school all day long. So is there something else that's going on that's causing that kid not to be able to pay attention? Um, just to point out that boys have a higher rate of ADHD than girls, and that learning disabilities are really prevalent in the ADHD population. So it's something that we're always paying attention to. Like the six-year-old that I saw in clinic yesterday, he's got a great special ed teacher right now. He's really working hard on his learning disability. Um, but he really has ADHD that's affecting his ability to learn. Um, again, this is a slide from Dr. Sandlau, just looking at that overlap between ADHD, anxiety, depression, and conduct disorder. Kids in the middle, those kids in the middle with the 6% who have a little of everything, those are some of the toughest kids to manage, both for you and for us. All right, case three. This kid comes in once again with his parent who says that he is struggling in school. We know this already, history, history, history. This kid has, again, six out of nine of inattention. Really not very fidgety or not very hyperactive. Definitely has a problem, again. But again, nicely, no really comorbidities up there. No anxiety, no depression, no conduct disorder. The teacher completely agrees with mom. A lot of inattention, but really not very fidgety or hyperactive at home. And definitely a problem as well. So again, this is the predominantly inattentive type. Um, that has six or more symptoms of the inattention, but not the hyperactivity. These are kids who really have trouble organizing. They're careless. Um, they make careless mistakes a lot of the time, forget daily activities. This is a kid who strews like their backpack like with stuff all throughout the school, right? They leave like, oh, they're 
gym bag is over there, and they forgot their instrument over there, and their socks were like separate from their shoes, and their you know, six pages of homework are scattered in three classrooms. Um, they often seem to be ignoring you, which is super frustrating. Um, they seem to be ignoring you um, and not listening when you're speaking to them. Again, talking about comorbidities, of ter especially in terms of other mental health disorders, ODD, enuresis is actually a pretty high comorbidity with ADHD, depression, anxiety, conduct disorder, and a little bit with bipolar disorder. Um, my, this is just my personal bias, which is not borne out in any literature. Um, but I've also heard my psychiatry colleagues saying the same thing. Um, for those, especially girls who are quiet, good, but have pretty significant ADD, I often see those girls around fourth or fifth grade with pretty significant anxiety. Um, and it takes a while to tease out whether or not it's the anxiety is the primary problem in school or whether or not it's inattentive subtype of ADD. So I uh, urge you to be cautious with some or, or just mindful of some of those kids who are the quiet, well-behaved, super sweet, lovely kids who are not disruptive. Those are the kids I think that we miss in our practice and I think the schools miss too sometimes. Um, this is to remind you that um, we talked about those three things that children need to do. They need to do well at school, they need to get along somewhat decently with their parents, and they need to have good peer relationships. Parents of kids with ADHD report that th almost three times as many have peer problems and that they are ten times more likely to have difficulties that interfere with friendships. So sometimes we'll get a kid who comes in for concern about autism or autism spectrum disorder because they're just annoying their friends and they don't seem to be able to get those social cues from their friends. And it's a hard diagnosis to try to tease out how much of it is a spectrum type disorder versus how much of it is ADHD. And they're really not getting the social cues because they're so impulsive all the time that they're not stopping and recognizing when somebody gets irritated with them. Children with ADHD are more likely to have peer rejection and this, um, Dr. San Loud and I were talking about this last night, it can be minutes or hours for a child who has uh, uh, got ADHD to become socially rejected in their peer group. So these kids are annoying, not just to you and to me, but also to their peers. And so that's really sad. I don't know if that one made, that was like the saddest. I was like, Dr. San Loud, that's really sad. She goes, I know. So again, these kids really do need to have our support for um, some of the social skills. So sometimes you'll see us recommend that they get social skills training. Even though they're not on the spectrum, it's because of their ADHD is interfering with their social skill development. Treatment is a three-legged stool. stool three-legged stool. It takes all three parts in order to make it work. It, uh, requires behavioral management, it requires educational support, and sometimes it requires medication support too. So again, medication, behavioral intervention strategies, including parenting strategies and school interventions. The AAP guidelines, again, that nice thing that they did for us starting in 2002, recognizes that ADHD is a chronic condition. It also means that we don't just dispense Ritalin and not kind of figure out what we're doing afterwards. We really do have to have some target outcomes of what we're trying to measure and what type of improvements are we looking for. And we can consider using stimulant medication and or behavioral therapy as appropriate interventions. If we're not meeting our target outcomes, you, me, the schools, the psychologists all need to step back and think about what we're doing. Are we making the right diagnosis? Are we putting the right treatment plan into place? 
It also means that I have regular follow-up with all my kids who are on medication for ADHD. Again, it's not just here's a year's worth of Ritalin, good luck to you. We see them back pretty frequently to assess both the physical side effects of medication, but also to measure those behavioral outcomes that we're looking for. In terms of behavioral uh, management, these are kind of four things that you might hear about. Positive reinforcement, we all know about. Um, child completes an assignment and then is allowed to have a treat. Time out, which is especially effective in the younger age group. Response cost, that's basically just consequences. If you don't do X, you're going to lose your iPad time. So a consequence-based behavioral management system. And then a token economy, which again works especially well in some of the little kids where you earn points, stickers, charts, uh, little toys, anything. Um, for uh, doing a behavior that you uh, want them want to encourage. So again, those are just some things that you might hear either from us, from Dr. San Loud, who's a developmental pediatrician, or certainly from our psych colleagues. In terms of medication, stimulant medication really is our first-line medication. It has been the most extensively studied. Ritalin's been out there since the 50s to 60s. Adderall has been around since the 70s. Um, when it was called minimal brain damage in the 50s and 60s. I don't know if you know that. ADHD was called minimal brain damage back then. <laughs> Terminology has improved, at least. Um, we do have some non-stimulant medications, but they really are not as effective to t for those target outcomes of inattention and hyperactivity. But sometimes we use them when kids are either not responding to the standard treatment or we're bumping against, up against side effects that we can't manage and we need to add on a second medication. The stimulants, these are some of the names that might be coming across your med list when you guys are getting the school forms. Um, they're short-acting forms, which last around three to four hours, slightly longer forms, which are around eight to nine hours, plus or minus a couple. Some of these medicines you can open and sprinkle. Many of them we try to get ones that you can open and sprinkle, put them in applesauce or yogurt or anything um, for kids who can't swallow a pill. And then we have some very long-acting ones like Concerta. Concerta is one, though, that you have to swallow whole. You cannot crush it um, uh, or open it or sprinkle it in any way. Um, the two at the bottom, Quilavent and Aptensio, are two of the newest formulations. Um, the Quilavent has both a chewable as well as a liquid, and Aptensio lasts for 12 hours. I haven't prescribed them yet because I don't think any insurance company has approved those yet um, as being on formulary. The Adderall class of medications, or the dextroamphetamines, include the short, once again, short-acting, which lasts somewhere around four hours, long-acting, which is somewhere around eight to ten hours, and then the longest-acting one is Vyvanse, which is also called Lisdexamphetamine. The side effects of all these stimulants are pretty similar. Sleep problems, so difficulty with the onset of sleep, although in my experience, a lot of the kids with ADHD already have difficulty with sleep. They are just too busy wound up. They have a hard time going to sleep anyways. Decreased appetite. What that means, especially in the school system, is that they often come back with their lunch box completely full. They just don't eat lunch at school. They don't eat their mid-morning snack. If they're little kids you know, in the grade school and they get a 10 o'clock break for a snack, they just don't eat their snack very much. I tell parents that breakfast really does become the most important meal of the day. They need to go out the door with a really decent breakfast that has protein, that has you know, actual food, not just a Pop-Tart going out the door. 
Um, it also, yes, ma'am. I also find that too, some of those kids will uh, in the afternoon have like the meltdown mm -hmm. when in fact they're really hungry. Yeah. But they can't tell us that. Exactly. Constantly, and that's part of the problem too is with some of these kids, they mm -hmm. have ed assistants that yeah. aren't necessarily um, aware or, mm -hmm. or receive professional development yeah. or training to sort of be that effective person to, to be aware of some of the cues and, and things that these kids yeah. have. They can't tell us. Yeah, absolutely. And so some of these kids, especially if they're on a medicine that only lasts six hours and it's wearing off by one or two o'clock in the afternoon, they might be getting that rebound irritability when the medication wears off. They also just might be super hungry and they didn't eat snack and they didn't eat lunch and it's already two o'clock and they're really getting pretty cranky from that. So I also tell parents, depending if they're home, that they really, again, need to provide a real food snack after school, not goldfish but actually, you know, the sandwich that they didn't eat at lunch or the, you know, thermos full of chili left over from last night, that actually becomes snacks. So it's actual real food for a snack and not just goldfish. Um, some kids uh, have headaches, stomach aches, like with many medication. For kids who have underlying tick disorders, um, the stimulant medication can exacerbate the ticks. It doesn't cause a tick disorder, but it exacerbates it. We still use stimulation, stimulant medication for kids with tick disorders. We just are very careful to talk with the families about the pros and cons of it um, and really understanding that their ticks might look a little bit worse on these medications. The one that we most I personally have the most difficulty with is some kids really do get very moody or irritable on the stimulant medication. Um, that's a really hard side effect to deal with. It's a really, it's a real challenge for us in the pediatric world. I know it's a challenge for you guys as well. And that's when sometimes I will use a, a an adjuvant or a second medication or a second line medication. Oops, keep going. Karen Downing, who fills all our ADHD prescriptions. That first week in September, I know you guys are busy. Karen was hoping to be here so you guys can meet her. She's, again, our ADHD nurse who coordinates all our ADHD evaluations as well as all our prescriptions. The amount of prescription writing we do that first week of school is really phenomenal. Um, we are hoping, just to let you guys know, um, right now all um, stimulant medicines are, are um, paper prescriptions that the parents actually have to pick up or we mail to the pharmacy. It's actually a piece of paper. They're not allowed, we're not allowed to call it in. We're not allowed to send it in. So it takes a lot of forced thought for a family to get their medicines from us on time. We were promised March 1st, which came and went, that we'll be able to do it electronically. The federal law actually had to change for us to be able to do that. But hopefully that will streamline your kids who come in saying, I couldn't get my medicines from the pediatrician. Uh, hopefully the electronic ones will be able to come through. Again, it was supposed to be March 1st. We've been promised. It'll be soon. These are some of the non-stimulant medications. Um, again, you might see these on some of your med lists. Um, the ones like uh, 10X Intuniv are often used for the kids with comorbid tick disorders. Um, clonidine is often used for kids with really bad sleep problems. The kids who wind up on Stratera um, often can't tolerate the side effects of the stimulant medications, or at least in my practice, some of those kids have a lot of uh, comorbid mood disorders um, that aren't full-on anxiety or full-on depression, but they just get really irritable. And so I find that the Stratera can help with that. Well, Butrin is really very much a third-line agent outside of the alpha agonist and the Stratera. A word about special populations. 
Um, how many of you work in a, pre uh, a school setting that has preschoolers? Okay, so a bunch of you. And how many work in the high schools? Okay. Um, so I think those two populations are pretty special. It goes to your question also about college-age students. Talking about preschool age first, while we will do an evaluation, so back when I was initially uh, in training and new into practice, we wouldn't diagnose a kid until they got into the elementary school systems. And if they were four or five, we'd be like, not, not a pediatric problem. You need to go to a psychiatrist. You need to go do something else. You need to go to a developmental specialist. The AAP has really said that we should be evaluating kids down as young as age four. But at four, there is a lot of overlap. You guys know who work with the preschoolers. They are supposed to get out of the circle at circle time. They're not supposed to sit for 10 minutes and carefully listen to a story. That's the job of a preschooler. And to try to tease out how much of that is normal development and how much of that is abnormal is really challenging for teachers, for schools, for pediatricians. If a child has moderate to severe disturbances in their preschool, we really will do that evaluation. We'll make sure development is okay. That's the big one, making sure there's no, um, uh, no gross motor delays, no fine motor delays, no speech delays, and that behavior therapy is really, really, really the first-line treatment. So I'm going to say it again. Those preschool-age kids, behavior therapy is the first-line treatment. So we try our best to get those kids into Head Start where they're getting educational support. We try our best to get those kids into our community mental health centers. As you know, our psychiatry and psychology colleagues have wait lists that are super long. It's really hard to get these families in. Um, but that really is going to be the first-line treatment for those preschool-age kids. But sometimes we can't. Sometimes there is no availability in the Head Start. Sometimes there's transportation issues. Sometimes there's no ability. You know, I have one kid right now who's been on the wait list for, I think, seven months at age four to get into counseling services. I mean, seven months for a four-year-old, that's like a lifetime, right? Um, and I've had a really hard conversation with this family about whether or not to put this kid on medications because I really want him in counseling, but it's just not accessible to him right now. Um, so we'll probably be putting this kid on stimulant medication because he's so disruptive. He's so unsafe for his own body as well as the, his peers. He's unsafe with his siblings. Um, so it's a really hard conversation to have. Um, so that's a little bit about preschoolers. Adolescents, including the college-age students, <laughs> I, have a, I, I do a lot of adolescent medicine. I find these some of the hardest kids um, to try to assess that they come in with new onset ADHD. Like, wow, you're really actually doing fine in school. You're getting Bs. You're getting As. You're doing fine. Um, I have one kid who went to Dartmouth this year, a Dartmouth college student. Straight A student all the way through high school. She plays D1 sports. And you know what? Dartmouth was really hard this year. And it was really challenging. And she said, I think I have ADHD because I seem to have to study a lot harder than I used to. <laughs> I was like, girl, you're at Dartmouth. You're playing D1 sports. Like, that's what, 40 hours a week job? I mean, that's not easy, right? So it's really hard. You've got other confounding factors. You've got the typical adolescent risk-taking behaviors, drinking, drugs, Texting until 2 in the morning with your Snapchatting. It's not texting. It's Snapchatting with your friends until 2 in the morning. 
you have peer pressures, you have all these other confounding variables in adolescence that makes it really, really hard to diagnose. My husband is also a pediatrician here, Steve Chapman. Um, he had a kid come in yesterday who's 22, who's on antibodies for alcoholism, and said, Dr. Chapman, I think I need Adderall. I can't concentrate very well. And Steve said to him, have you tried Addie's? Because Addie's you can buy, Adderall you can buy at Hanover or in Dartmouth for $10 a pill. Every kid around who comes to me from college as a college student has already tried their friend's Adderall, 100%. And I personally have a very hard time sorting out, do they really have ADHD? Because if I take Adderall, it's going to make me concentrate a little bit better too. And how much of it is just the rigors of adolescence that is making it challenging? However, we do need to be mindful that adolescents with ADHD have higher trauma rates. They have a car accident rate that is two to four times higher than the general population, which makes them a bigger risk, again, teenage driver today, bigger risk than an adult who has a blood alcohol level of, of, uh, that's in the drunk range. Okay, so kids with ADHD are actually at higher risk for car accidents and fatalities than an adult who's drunk. So if it's untreated? Untreated, yeah. So for my adolescent patients, I really spend a lot of time trying to tease out, is it new, is it old, is it just the rigors of adolescence? Um, but being mindful that really untreated ADHD in the adolescent population has a lot lot of comorbidities associated with it. Um, as I said, Adderall is easily sold, $10 a pill on the Dartmouth campus. There is a potential for addiction, substance misuse. I have one patient, this is a number of years ago, who went off to UVM, a straight-A student. She had had ADHD since she was little. She was awesome kid. Um, and she didn't take it her entire sophomore year because her roommates kept asking her to borrow her Adderall. She's like, I can't. I need it because I've had... I was this big when I was diagnosed. I need my medicines. And so she opted just not to even take it back to campus with her. Um, so it, uh, diversion is a really big issue in this population. So when I have a college student going off to college for the first time, I say, it's your business who you're going to tell about your ADHD. But I'm telling you, if you tell people you have ADHD, you will get asked for your medicines. So bring a lockbox. Bring a safety box. Be mindful about who you share that information with. All right, coming back full circle to the schools again. Again, it's a three-legged stool. So we've talked about behavioral therapy. We've talked about some medication therapy. And then the schools, you guys are involved sometimes in helping to write those 504s or IEPs. These are some of the accommodations that Dr. Sanloud put together that she sees often in the IEPs. These are some of the ones that I see as well. Sometimes it's preferential seating. Sometimes it is uh, being able to record assignments in a different way. Sometimes it's a note-taking partner or notes that are given after class to the kids. Sometimes it's elimination of homework. A lot of my kids wind up, uh, especially my middle school or high school students with ADHD, wind up getting in their 504 accommodation that they have a supervised study at the end of the day, which allows them to complete all their homework before their medication wears off at 4 p.m. and they go home so that they don't have as much homework to do. Sometimes they get extra test time, test taking time. And sometimes it's just letting the teacher know that they have ADHD. And I have some teachers who are really great. They allow the kid to stand in the back of the classroom 
and fidget back there so it's not disruptive. A lot of teachers and OTs now will put fidgets in the classroom, whether or not um, it's a yoga ball to sit on or one of those little balance stools, something like that. Some teachers are super creative. Dr. San Loud had somebody who's the kid with ADHD just got to run all the notes up to the principal's office every single time just to burn off some of that extra energy. Um, so again, there's a lot of creative things that you can do to help support a kid with ADHD. Um, just to summarize, obviously ADHD is common. There's not one of us in the room who hasn't encountered it, either personally or professionally. Once again, medication is only one leg of the stool, and effective treatment really is a team sport. I also wanted to share with you what we do here at Dartmouth. Um, so if you guys are sending in patients who get an ADHD evaluation, Karen Downing, who I'm sorry couldn't be here today, um, puts together a packet. This is called the ADHD Initial Evaluation Packet. And it has a school side, and she labels it school to fill out that side, parents to fill out that side, and includes a release of information so that we can talk to you guys. Um, it has the Vanderbilt forms, a little bit of an explanation. Um, and we ask, and then it's got a little bit of an information sheet. I'll have these up here. Anybody can take a look afterward. A little information sheet about ADHD for families so they have a little bit more understanding about what the process is and how we evaluate them. Um, we ask for all these papers to be back before we do our evaluation, and Karen's been really good about getting all that paperwork in so that when that six-year-old came to me yesterday, I actually <laughs> I was like, oh, Karen, you did a really good job because I had an inch thick IEP packet to go through. It had everything, but it was really incredibly useful, and it didn't waste then the parents' time when they took time off work to come in and see me in the middle of the day. After we've made the diagnosis and we've done that ADHD evaluation, we said, yes, I agree with the psychologist. I agree with you guys. I agree with the teachers. I do think he has ADHD. Um, we give them this packet. A couple things are in here. This is from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's got information about behavioral management, diagnosis, about the medications as well. This is actually my favorite part of the package, which for those of you um, who might remember Dr. Kittredge, who used to run a school clinic here a number of years ago, she included this in every packet. This is the desirable traits of ADHD. It includes resiliency, ingenuity, sensitivity to others, boundless energy, imaginative, inventive. It reminds all of us, parents, pediatricians, teachers, that it's not all bad and that there are, your child has amazing strengths that we need to capitalize on. That's my favorite part about the packet. Uh, we have a form here that goes back. Um, then again, if they're going for an IEP or a 504 that gives them the diagnosis of ADHD, um, and then it gives them a little bit more information about ADHD. So these packets go out to all our kids. Yes, ma'am. I'm just curious, in the screening, um, are they asked the, um, the parents if they have it? electronics in their bedrooms at night? We do. So I can't say that I, we're 100% asking that, but that is absolutely sleep disruption. It's, it's huge. Absolutely. Um, so that's one of the big things that I spend a lot of time talking with is sleep hygiene. And I know Dr. San Loud is also a sleep medicine specialist. So if I can't handle the kids with ADHD and I need to refer them to her, she spends an incredible amount of time talking about sleep hygiene. 
teenagers, my own teenagers, I keep telling them this, they don't listen to me. <laughs> I know. I'm like, you need nine hours of sleep a night. And they're like, yeah, whatever. I've got homework to do. My teenagers are quite mad at me because they have to plug their phones in downstairs. And they're like, nobody else has to do that. I'm like, I'm so sorry. That's just too bad. You still have to do it. So we do spend a lot of time talking about electronics in the room. It really shocks me, actually, how many of my little kids who are coming in for behavioral problems have an iPad, phone, some sort of device in their room that they're on. They're like, they can't go to sleep. I'm like, gosh, they were playing video games at 9 p.m. I can't go to sleep if I were playing video games at 9 p.m. at night. Um, so we spend a lot of time talking about screens out of rooms. Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's huge. It's for all age groups. Yes, ma'am. You uh, mentioned the 30-year adult trial. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love to. This came from Dr. San Loud, so I, you're going to be one of those people I ask for your email address, and I'll get you that literature reference. Um, yeah, uh, like I said, Dr. San Loud and I were talking last night. She goes, "It was just published. It was really discouraging, actually. It was it was really a difficult paper to read." Um, again, to think that ADHD really is a lifelong condition for a lot of people. Um, many adults and older people can be able to manage their lives around their ADHD, and maybe they won't be an accountant, but they'll have some amazing, creative, wonderful job and life partner who embrace their, you know, their uh, distractedness or their hyperactivity. But if you can come down and give me your email address, I'll make sure that Dr. San Lau can get you that reference. Yes, Pam. Um, this happened to me recently where, um, a where a parent was, was trying to get the Vanderbilt's um, football out a teacher. And um, the teacher's belief was that the parent could not see, cannot take the Vanderbilts to the doctor, that they shouldn't know what's on there. And that, that's what she understood. And there are a lot of teachers that mm -hmm. actually believe that, yeah. that it's, you know, we fill it out and send it out to the doctor. So I um, had found out that it didn't make it to the doctor's office, so I gave her the copy. Yeah. Well, the teacher just, you know, yeah. Went nuts on me. So of course, I emailed Dina and said, "Is this true? Is this yeah. really something yeah. I have to, um, you know?" Because I, I it's, there's no rule. There's no. So I'll tell you what we do is that sometimes we see the kids who, at this point, by the time they involve us, have battled with the schools, and there's already a bad relationship between the teacher and the parent, or the parent and the schools. And so sometimes then we ask for the information just to come separately. Then mom won't read the teacher evaluation, go, that's not right, and storm into the schools. Um, I will tell you that, at least for us, we actually give them a self-addressed stamped envelope for the school to be able to send it in separately from the parents. But there is no rule. There is no law. And I have parents who are my best advocates. And they're the ones who went to the special ed teacher, and they went to the OT, and they went to the classroom teacher, and they were the ones who gathered all the information. So I think as much as we can collaborate as a team, that's better. But, but if you have that situation where everybody is already at loggerheads with another, we do provide self-addressed stamped envelopes. So you don't have to do it. Thank you very much. I'll stay down here and answer any questions.